Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Most Americans are not really tuning into what's going on with 2020. They're going to turn on that TV. They're going to see me standing there. And they're going to say, who's the Asian man standing next to Joe Biden? <laughs> and then they're going to look you up. And then they're going to Google Asian man standing next to Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, and, and then they're going to find out about me, my vision for the country. And the Yang Gang is going to grow and grow. That's Andrew Yang. He's an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Yang's got policy proposals for almost every issue, but his focus is on technology, specifically automation and its financial impact on workers. One of his solutions, the universal basic income, which he calls the freedom dividend. It would give $1,000 a month to every American, no questions asked. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Today's episode is a bit long for two reasons. We have our second ever presidential candidate on Stay Tuned, so there was plenty to discuss there. But first, we have to get to some unexpected news from DOJ. I'm taping this late Wednesday afternoon, and as anyone in the vicinity of social media knows by now, Special Counsel Robert Mueller just made his first public statement regarding his nearly two-year investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, also that obstruction stuff. While Mueller's press conference was brief, there's a lot to unpack. And there's no one better to help me than Ann Milgram, former Attorney General of New Jersey. But most importantly, my co-host on the weekly Cafe Insider podcast, We'll continue this conversation for the Cafe Insider community. And with that, so it's Wednesday afternoon, about 4 p.m., a few hours after Bob Mueller finally uttered some words in front of cameras about his famous report. And I'm here in the studio with Ann Milgram. Hi, Pre. Hi, Ann. So people got to hear what Bob Mueller's voice sounds like. I was about to say that. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, I didn't know Bob Mueller sounded like that. He has a good voice. I think he sounds like what I would expect him to sound like. I don't know if it's podcast good. Oh. But it's pretty good. You could try him out. <laughs> have him on. You know, I, the sense I've gotten from him is he doesn't want to do a lot of talking. I agree with that. On a podcast or otherwise. Yes. So there's a lot to cover. I know he only spoke for like eight or nine minutes. We can we, talk since for we, much we, longer. We can talk for like 10x, right? Probably. Easy. We'll try to go like 5x. But it seems to me the first question is, was this a referral to Congress? As we're sitting here and as I was walking to the studio, uh, Democratic presidential candidates and other people of prominence have been giving out their two cents. Like, this is clear. It's going to Congress. It's going to Congress. That's what Mueller wants. But I will say before you answer, he did not say in so many words, it is my view that Congress should decide this question. And as you and I have been discussing for some time now, do we need to be reading between the lines? Should this be an issue of subtext? Why can't he just say, if he means that to be true, why can't he just say, look, we did this because we thought that you need to maybe provide some evidence for some other body, like Congress. Congress, go to it. 
Let me start by saying one of the most surprising things about today was that in the lead up to the release of Barr's summary and then the report, every day for like three weeks ahead of time, we would hear the Mueller report is coming. The attorney general is going to speak. It was everything. And literally, Bob Mueller is a ninja. Like, <laughs> as of last night, we knew nothing. This morning, my my day is normal. All of a sudden, right. like an hour, an hour and 15 minutes before Mueller spoke, he gets up there. So this was, in my view, classic Bob Mueller. As I said, as we were discussing before we came on, I was on a plane back from Oslo, Norway. I lost the Wi-Fi somewhere over the Atlantic. And at first I was annoyed because I like to be <laughs> like to be connected to the world and yes. to you, Anne. And then I lost the internet, and I thought, well, actually, this is kind of this is kind of nice. It's a good thing. I listened yeah. to some other people's podcasts. I watched a trashy movie, and then my internet came back on after three hours, and my inbox was full. Surprise! With messages from lots of people, including Ann Milgram. <laughs> so you're right. Interestingly, <laughs> yeah. the reporting is that the White House had been notified last night last night that a statement was going to be made, and yet it did not leak. It's amazing. Back to your question: Was it a referral to Congress? You're right. Mueller never says, "I am referring this to Congress." I read today as a few things. I think Mueller was cleaning up the record, making it abundantly clear what he said in his report. Bill Barr spoke for him. A number of other people have been talking about what Mueller meant. This was Mueller's chance, very brief, but very, I think, concise and clear of what Mueller wanted to talk about. Well, that doesn't mean it was concise and clear say, maybe about— Maybe I shouldn't say clear. But no, but it was very concise and clear about what he wanted to talk it about. It was exactly what Mueller wanted to talk about. The other pieces, I read it as Mueller saying— I've done my job, and I've done my job within the constraints that I had, meaning the Office of Legal Counsel opinion said that the president cannot be charged. We made a decision that it wasn't fair to go out and make a determination as to whether or not he should be charged if we could not charge him and there was no possibility of having your day in court. And by the way, there's all these actions going on to try to get the underlying evidence, which I'm not a part of, and the Office of Legal Counsel and the Constitution provide or imagine that the right body or the body to sort of hear this now would be the United States Congress. So referral, no. But in my view, like I've done my job. Now it's time for other people to do their job. I think yes. One preliminary question, I guess, because he didn't say much new. And he made it very clear, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, you know, whether he should testify and what would be the usefulness of his testifying in front of Congress. But he didn't say much new. Why did he go in front of cameras? And my, my sense is, Bob Mueller wants nothing to have to do with explaining and going on and on and subjecting himself to members of Congress. And again, we'll go over that in more detail because I think it's worth worthwhile. And I think he was a little bit, I'm not going to use that old metaphor of like, you know, he looked like he was doing a hostage video, but he a little bit was. <laughs> you know, it's the same Bob Mueller. He seemed, you know, he seemed a little less strong in his manner than he usually does. Uh, he seemed a little bit more reluctant than I've seen him before at other events. But I think he felt this was his way of sort of satisfying the throngs who said, you got to speak, you got to speak. He must have thought that it was a good inflection point, that it was natural to say, I'm wrapping up, I'm resigning today, I'm going back to private life. So it's not some random day that he's deciding to speak for nine minutes in front of cameras. But I think he thought he was checking some box. Agree completely. He was not happy to do it. And more than that. So I think if Bob Mueller could have done it the way Bob Mueller completely would want to, he would have written a letter saying, (laughs) Dear Attorney General Barr, I resign. Sincerely yours, Bob Mueller. Maybe a couple of extra sentences in there. And he would have literally left it at that. But you're right that Congress has been demanding his testimony. It's very clear that today he said, I don't want to testify. That was new. 
That was new. That was we, new. We got that sense. And he did, in my view, this press conference. So he got the opportunity. Nobody's asking you questions. He gets to completely control what is said and how it's said. And so he got his nine, 10 minutes of time where he got to say what he wanted to say, but completely reluctantly. And I think it was, if I do this, maybe I can avoid yeah. going in front of Congress. So back to the original question of whether it was a referral to Congress. I didn't get to watch in, in real time because I was on this airplane and the, and the crappy Wi-Fi. But I then watched this afternoon, and before I watched, I read the statement. And I was really struck by something in the report itself, and that I've been harping on for many weeks. And look, the report is very long. In 448 pages. 448 pages. Single-spaced. And this is a short statement. I have it printed out at about three pages and change. So it's interesting what he chooses to repeat again. And he says, even though it's the case that the Office of Legal Counsel has two opinions that say you can't indict a sitting president, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents are available. And then he says, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. You put those two things together. Yes. Why do you have to do an investigation at all if you knew from the outset that you can't prosecute because he's a sitting president? You do it because maybe there are two other kinds of prosecutions that can happen. One, not really a prosecution, but a constitutional process of impeachment. And the other is some future actual prosecutor who will you know, be indebted to the special counsel team because they did their investigation while memories are fresh and documents are available. And so this process that he refers to, that the opinion itself at OLC makes explicit reference to, to get around this issue that has bothered people and makes people very upset, that no person is supposed to be above the law. Everyone is supposed to be able to be held accountable. And the opinion that says you can't indict a sitting president makes it very clear that the reason why that shouldn't freak people out is that you have this other thing, and it's called Congress, and it's called the process of impeachment. And Bob Mueller explicitly refers to it. And so it, I, I think it's a little closer to a referral to Congress, but it's a part and parcel of Mueller's extreme minimalism. Yes, I agree. In not wanting to say the thing. Like, he didn't want to say although he meant it. He didn't want to say... Congress, it's your job now. But yeah. there are other things he didn't want to say. Also, yep. He didn't want to say Bill Barr totally mucked it up. Yeah. I believe absolutely Bob Mueller thinks Bill Barr mucked it up. I think absolutely he believes Congress should take a look. I think absolutely he believes that there's sufficient evidence to bring a criminal case of obstruction. But in each of those categories, and there may be others, he thinks to himself, well, it's not my job to say that thing. Right. And I don't know that he even thinks he's you know, engaging in subtext. He, he, I don't think he does at all. I but think he is. Right. <laughs> he, he is. And and one of the things I noticed before is I had to think after I watched his statement, I read it, and I had to think about what he was saying in a number of places and what it really meant. And that is whether he intends it or not. And I don't think he intends it. It is subtext. Like, we're sort of figuring out, well, what did he choose to talk about? What didn't he choose to talk about? And how did he talk about it? And then we're trying to understand what that means, which is complicated, yeah, it is. Can I add one other thing to that list? You had two reasons to do an investigation. The third I would add is that other people can be charged. And so even if yes. the president could not be charged, and I think we shouldn't lose light of the fact that a number of other people have been charged and how critical that is. So on this question of whether or not the Mueller report was a referral to Congress, I think we agree, you and I agree, not in so many words. Do you and I also agree that those who say that they take it as essentially effectively referral and then Congress makes its own decision about what information exists in the world. At the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter what Bob Mueller intends. He's one man who ran a special counsel's office 
And by the way, we should thank him for his service and we thank should. the rest of the team I for their service. We should have said that at the outset. And it's not up to him. I, I would like to know what his intention was. And I think people put a lot of stock in what his intent was, but it doesn't sort of matter. And now Congress can decide based on what has been put forth to act or not act. So I think the people who are saying they take the Mueller report as a referral, it doesn't sort of matter if it was or not. But I think they can make those statements in good faith. What's really clear is that Mueller has laid out an incredible amount of evidence. He's made a record and factual findings that Congress can use as a decision maker, this question of whether and how they hold the president accountable. And so you're right, whether or not Mueller intended that as a referral to Congress specifically. I mean, I want to be sensitive on this. I don't know that he did. Do you think he intended anything? This is what I want to be sensitive. I think Mueller, to your point, was so careful of not wanting to put his thumb on the scale. He didn't want to put his thumb on the scale of public opinion. He didn't want to put his thumb on the scale of what decision Congress makes. And so he's trying so hard to be neutral that in some ways what he's trying to basically say is, here, this is for the American public. This is for Congress. I'm out. But it does lead to this point where you and I are sitting here sort of speculating about what he intended. Yeah. So on the question that is occupying a lot of people, is it proper to indict a sitting president? And you and I have spent a lot of time here and elsewhere talking about the two OLC opinions, the one in 1973 and the one in 2000. And Bob Mueller said something in his statement today that I've seen for the few minutes that I was watching television before rushing over here, people are making a big deal of on the question of whether or not a president can be charged with a crime while in office. He says, That is unconstitutional. My view, and you may have a different one, is that people are overreacting to that statement because if you look at what he said in context, he says, we did not make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. And then he explains, referring back to the Mueller report, which explains that under longstanding department policy, referring to the policy, the OLC opinions, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. And then he says, that is unconstitutional. I take that to mean that's what the opinions say. And people who haven't read the opinion think it's sort of a policy, but yeah, it it is. It's a policy and a guideline, but it's based on that office's interpretation of the Constitution. So the opinion says it is unconstitutional to indict a sitting president. What do you make of his statement? So I I had the same reaction that I think a lot of people did when he first said it, which is, uh, is that Bob Mueller telling me that he, Bob Mueller, and the special counsel's office thinks it's unconstitutional to indict a sitting president, or is he telling me that that's the OLC opinion? I ultimately, having read this, now 10 times, I think you're right that what he what he meant is that this is the, the department policy, right? And the sentence begins, it explains that under longstanding department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime. As you just said, that is unconstitutional. I think he is referring to the policy, but it did jar me when I first heard him say it, which is like... It's a flat I statement. Actually, yeah, because I, I don't yeah. agree that it is unconstitutional. And by the way, the courts have not said that it's unconstitutional. That's the United States Department of Justice making right. their own policy as to what they can and cannot do. And right. so I, I was jarred by it, but I think upon reading that multiple times, you know why else I think it's not Bob Mueller speaking for himself? He just never does. I mean, there's... Yes, you know, but... It would be really interesting if this was the one spot that he made a legal determination. This is a very interesting post-Oracle discussion of what Bob Mueller, (laughs) who everyone says speaks clearly and we're all have nothing better to do than to parse each word. Look, he could have very easily said, according to that policy, it would be unconstitutional. So he chooses his words carefully. I guarantee you the remaining people, personnel in the special counsel's office, spent a lot of time on every single one of these words. And Bob Mueller himself did because he had to speak them. But this goes to now another question that I have, maybe doesn't burn up other people, but it makes me very curious. And I tweeted about this earlier today. When did the special counsel's office determine that given the 
longstanding policy that is unconstitutional, the longstanding interpretation that is unconstitutional to indict a sitting president, when did the special counsel's office basically agree and adopt that position internally? Was it on day one? And it seems to me it's arguable that it was on day one. Clear policy. He's, you know, a minimalist. He's conservative with a small C. And if they decided two years ago, well, look, part of our mandate is to investigate what? Obstruction. In the wake of the firing of Jim Comey, and one of the people we're going to investigate for obstruction is, in fact, the president of the United States. And they knew two years ago. I'm curious to know if that's true. Because if that's so, you can make an argument that in the midst of speculation from a lot of people, you and I have been consistent in saying we did not believe that Bob Mueller would indict a sitting president because of that guidance. But that was speculation on our part. I don't know that it would have been inappropriate to make clear to the public that an investigation was going to be undertaken. But no one should have an expectation coming from Bob Mueller's office, not from you and me, but coming from Bob Mueller's office. No one should expect an indictment because of this policy. That came as a little bit of a surprise to a lot of people. And I'm not sure they made that determination on the first day. What do you think? So I don't know. We're speculating as always. But I think that if I were sitting in an office like that or you were sitting in an office like that, you would be thinking, okay, let's do the Russia investigation. And when it comes to obstruction, I think it would have come up maybe not day one, but it would have come up pretty quickly as to the question of what do you do about the president? Can you charge him? Should you investigate him? If you can't charge him, should you conduct the investigation? That's really important because people are saying that now. So let's say very early on, maybe not day one, but like day 11, you realize that with respect to the president, we're never going to be able to bring a charge. What's the purpose? And it seems to me that we've already discussed what the purpose is. The purpose is to put it in the record for someone else after he leaves office. That's another reason why I think it must be sort of an inferential referral to Congress. And because there's a possibility of other people being involved in the crime, and maybe they could be charged even if the president can't be. But look, it leads to the question from a lot of people, why'd you waste all our time? One of the things Mueller said today that I don't think he's said before and I thought was really important was talking about why we investigate obstruction of justice and how important it is to get the truth in the American yeah. criminal justice system. And I will read you. And it was said for a purpose. Robert Mueller said, it was critical for us to obtain full and accurate information from every person we questioned. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. So that's something that that Mueller pointed out, in my view, and I think in your view too, there's a huge incentive for that to be investigated, to understand obstruction. You're right about preserving evidence, taking witness statements. You're, you're right also about potential charges after the president leaves office. But again, it's also possible that other people would have been charged with obstruction of justice. When you walk into an investigation, as you and I both know, you don't know what you'll find. You don't know what charges you'll be able to bring necessarily, who you'll be able to bring them against. And so I don't judge Robert Mueller harshly for not, you know, sort of flying a flag saying, oh, and by the way, we're never going to charge you, Mr. President, um, publicly. So now pretend you're the special counsel and you begin this investigation. You know it's going to take a while. Maybe it's going to take a couple of years. And you have determined that you can't bring a charge against the president. But you are in the world. You live in the world. And you hear that lots of people are speculating about a charge of the president. And a lot of people are actually putting their hopes on that because they don't like the president. And a lot of other people are thinking, well, you're a crazed maniac if you're thinking you're going to indict the president over this Russia hoax stuff that the president keeps talking about. But in either event, apart from a small core of you know sort of legal experts um, who were not much listened to in this process – You have tens of millions of people thinking, at the end of the day, there could be an indictment of the president. And you know that there's not going to be. Would you have thought about making some disclosure to the public, directly or indirectly, 
so that you might tamp down this outsized, crazed speculation of whether or not the president of the United States was going to be hauled off in handcuffs. I want to respond by saying a few different things here. First of all, if I was really the special counsel, I would not answer your question <laughs> because I would not be and, speaking. And, and I would be, just, I would be speaking so you know. to an empty chair. There would be, there would be, the podcast would be much worse. So just to be clear. But let's separate this stuff out. The first question is whether the president could be charged. But there's another really important question here that I don't necessarily think Mueller answered on day one or day 11, which was, should he make a determination as to whether or not crimes were committed? And they are two different things. Yeah. And so I think when we're watching the media and Twitter, everyone's conflating it into the OLC opinion says that you can't charge a sitting president. And so that's why you say nothing. Mueller was really clear today in saying there's an OLC opinion that says we can't charge. And as a matter of fundamental fairness, since I can't charge someone, I'm not going to go out and make this determination, which is a public accusation of the president, and the president doesn't get his day in court. So I think the right question is, when did he make that decision? But that's also a little bit weird. So Anne and I went on for a bit to hear the rest of our analysis on Special Counsel Mueller's first public statement. Become a member of Cafe Insider at cafe.com slash insider. And Anne and I will have even more to say on Monday's episode of the Cafe Insider podcast. So if you haven't signed up yet... Head to cafe.com slash insider today. My guest this week is Andrew Yang. He hasn't approved this message, but he did come to talk to me on my podcast. If you haven't heard, Andrew Yang is one of the candidates currently running for the Democratic nomination for president of America. Andrew and I discussed the formative years of facing childhood bullies, the mechanics of his freedom dividend, which, yes, you heard it correctly the first time, would give American citizens $1,000 a month to offset financial stress, and what qualifies him to be the next leader of the free world. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned is supported by The New Yorker, the best writing in America today. Both online and in print, The New Yorker covers unique subjects like the world's diminishing supply of sand and a deep dive into heirloom beans, along with a full range of topics including politics, international affairs, climate change, pop culture, and humor. The New Yorker also publishes some of the best writers in the world, like Jane Mayer, an investigative journalist and staff writer for The New Yorker since 1995. Jane was my guest on Stay Tuned last fall, around the time of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, just days after Mayer broke a story about allegations against Kavanaugh. Now stay tuned listeners get 12 weeks of home delivery of the print edition, as well as unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day for just $6. That's half the regular price. You'll also get a New Yorker tote bag, as well as access to apps, online archives, a crossword puzzle, and more. Just go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code PREET. Andrew Yang, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Preet. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're running for president? Yes, I am. I'm uh, doing quite well by many accounts. You are. Lots of interest in your campaign. You've been able to raise a lot of money. But can I ask you one sort of first level background question? Of course. Explain a term to us. What is the Yang Gang? <laughs> the, the Yang Gang <laughs> is the moniker for people that support my presidential campaign on the internet in particular. So there's a hashtag Yang Gang. And uh, if you uh, search in that hashtag, you'll see a multitude of memes and people trying to 
educate others about some of the ideas behind my campaign. Very lucky for you that Yang rhymes with something like Gang. I know. You, you could have been named Barara. Barara Garara doesn't really work. No. Which would, is why I'm not running. Stretch. I'm sure there, there are a lot of people that want you to run even without a clever <laughs> rhyme. I was not born in this country, so I cannot. But I, you know what I can do? You know what you don't have to be a natural born citizen to do? Host a podcast. It's everyone in America, wherever you've come from, Norway or an asshole country, you can host a podcast. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> so a lot of people know who you are, but there are folks who, um, do, not. <laughs> who do not. And so who the hell are you? You know, I think your background and mine are not that dissimilar. I'm the son of immigrants uh, who met in graduate school at Berkeley. I was born in Schenectady, New York. My father was a physicist for GE and IBM. So I thought everyone's dad was a PhD when I was a kid. <laughs> right. No, I went to uh, Brown and uh, Columbia for law school like you did. Uh, was an unhappy corporate attorney for five months. And then uh, left to start an ill-fated dot-com business. And then worked in startups and, and businesses for 10 years or so. Um, really the biggest sharp left turn, if you will, my education company grew to become number one in the U.S. and was acquired in 2009, and that was the wake of the financial crisis, which was a very bleak time. I had literally been training kids at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and McKinsey, and I thought that the problem was that people who'd gone to fancy schools all went to Wall Street and became financial wizards, tech wizards, or management consultants. And so I thought, well, what they should be doing is starting businesses in places like Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, St. Louis, Birmingham. And so I started an organization to help train entrepreneurs in those environments. And it was really during those seven years that I directly encountered the aftermath of the automation of jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I'm certain that the reason why Donald Trump's our president today is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. So imagine being the entrepreneur who had helped create several thousand jobs in the Midwest and the South who was being celebrated for it, and then seeing that the tidal wave was heading the other direction. So that's how I came to run for president. That's a nice summary in history of the arc of your career, but I want to go back to childhood a little bit. You've been very open about your childhood. You were one of the very few Asian Americans where you grew up. Yes. And you talk about being bullied. Yeah. That's not a term that was really used back when you and I were young. No. Because uh, <laughs> I was bullied. I really haven't talked about this much, but I'm interested why you, you tried to fight back and what you thought was effective about it and how it's made you the person you are today. Uh, so I was one of the lone Asian kids in my school, and I'd also skipped a grade. Um, so imagine being You're smaller, one of those. scrawnier. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I bet I was scrawnier than you were. Wow. Um, yeah. We should bust out the photos <laughs> and compare. Thank God this is audio. So this was the 80s. The cultural inputs at the time were like Long Duck Dong of 16 Candles and... What's happening, hot stuff? Platoon, like that's the way the gook laughs. Like uh, there was this one yeah. kid who just say that to me all the time, that that's the way the gook laughs. And so as the skinny Asian kid getting picked on, I felt like, well, I guess my choices are either just take it or fight back. So I decided to fight back. Um, and I would regularly lose those fights because I was... Well, fight back, you mean physically? Yeah, physically. I would just be like, all right, I guess it's time to fight again. And so then I'd, I'd fight and lose. And you get your butt kicked. Yeah, I get my butt kicked. I got my butt How kicked often? a lot. <laughs> How often? How often did I fight and lose? I would like to know. It wasn't like a regular occurrence. There'd be a, like a month where it would happen several times and then like... What well, age group was this? From approximately elementary school through junior high. Like I, you were okay at Columbia Law School. At Columbia Law School, I regularly engage in fisticuffs now. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but, junior high. Oh, kidding aside, um, did the teachers help you? 
You know, and, and this is one of the things I'm very confused about, Preet, because like I remember when I was growing up, probably same as you, all this chaos ensued between kids in middle school or junior high. I don't remember teachers intervening very often. And um, I don't. Yeah, you don't remember. <laughs> don't. <laughs> there, there were times. I remember once being on a bus on a field trip going to the planetarium. I really don't talk about this stuff, but I just I was very moved by the fact that you talk about it, and here you are running for president of the United States. If you can do it, then I can talk about it a little bit also. And I remember being on this bus, and it was an hour-long ride. There were kids who were spitting at me and like smacking me on the back of the head and calling me names, some of which were derivative of the N-word uh, because I'm brown. And all I wanted was for a teacher to tell them to stop. And there was a teacher on the bus who didn't do anything. Isn't that strange? It doesn't strike me as strange, uh, having grown up in a similar era. And so to me, one of the big question marks is, what's happening today in schools. I think that there is this depiction that these things are not happening, but I'm sure they are just because kids are kids and humans are humans. And uh, I think there's like a very basic juvenile impulse to single out people who are different in certain ways. The thing that moved me about your discussions of being bullied was that you said it has always caused you to think about the underdog and the little guy or the little person, because that's the same for me. People might be surprised that I was really, really shy and I had these issues when I was a kid. And then I grew up and I became one of the most powerful prosecutors in the country. Yes. And you became a successful business person and are having a rollicking time running for president of the United States of America. It can be very easy to think you don't remember what it's like to not be successful or what it's like to not be popular, to not be liked. For me, it's been very formative in how I think about the world. Yeah, I felt myself to be that marginalized Asian kid throughout my entire life. And so uh, whenever there was a gathering of people, if I'd notice someone who seemed like they're out of place, like I would naturally gravitate towards them. I might be one of the least extroverted presidential <laughs> candidates in, in recent memory. Because, you know, like on my route, I was like a bookish Asian kid who just liked to read fantasy novels and play Dungeons and Dragons with my older brother, who's now an academic. And so, <laughs> do you think if you had to go back to your childhood, I'm not asking anyone to do it. <laughs> That's a Growing up and going to elementary school and grade school is tough. But given your experiences, if you had to go back, would you have handled it differently? It's hard to know, you know, because when you're like the scared, shy kid, I mean, you don't have that many tools in the, <laughs> the, the tool kit. Um, as happened with you, I mean, you went through these formative, very unpleasant experiences, but then they end up shaping you in various ways. So I just can't imagine what I would have done differently uh, because, you know, it's like you only have one history it's one of the big things because you're a parent, I'm a parent now, and like you look at your own kids, and like I certainly don't think my boys are going to grow up with the exact same form of <laughs> like marginalization or you know bullying that I'd experienced. Um, but then there's part of me that looks at them and is like, wow, how are you going to come of age? Like, what does it mean to grow up in a society that is at least on some levels more accepting of people of different backgrounds? The other thing is obviously my kids are growing up in a more diverse environment than I did at yeah, that era. Same. And the era is different too, because there are only three TV channels and <laughs> right. you know, it's like everything looked the same on TV. Well, and there are Asian people on TV. I mean, people literally didn't know what to call me. So I would say I was from India and I would get asked, so does your family live in a teepee? <laughs> no. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and literally people would say to me, I'm Indian American obviously, and Asian American is an interesting term in the United States because there's lots of countries in Asia. Some people don't consider Indian Americans to be from Asia because it's South Asia and there's less sort of overlapping culture and less overlapping origin. Uh, and I would get asked, uh, why don't you move back to China? Like, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that would be where I would move back to. But, you know, I didn't get into fights because I was, I was so scrawny that 
then I knew my odds were very low. Although I did a couple of times because you lose patience. Um, what I did was try to develop comeback. And so maybe that's why... You became witty? That's, that's actually pretty awesome. I wouldn't say... I, yeah, because all I had was if you could embarrass the bad kid who was treating you poorly, but was bigger and stronger and, and whiter, if you could humiliate them with a taunt or a joke, they might stop. Because if I could get other people to laugh at that person, that was the, that was the only weapon I had. Wow, so interesting. Um, I, I did not <laughs> have humor. Well, you're, you're, you went right for the jugular, I guess. Uh, I went right right for the, the beating. <laughs> do, do you think we need more nerds in politics? I certainly do. I think that one of the stats I saw was that there are three trained engineers or scientists in Congress right now. And we got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in 1995, 24 years ago. So they've literally been completely devoid of any technology advice or guidance that didn't come straight from industry. So we could certainly use more uh, nerds in, in government. And you are a nerd, am I correct? Even uh, though you don't have a science degree, yeah, you have a law a, degree, just like me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I certainly uh, would consider myself a nerd, yes. You have made a lot of the fact that we have ever-increasing technology and automation in this country, and that that automation leads to lots of things, including alienation of people who are in professions where their jobs have gone missing. If you look at the voting district data, there's a direct correlation between the adoption of industrial robots in an area and the movement towards Trump. Those industrial robots were centered in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states that Trump needed to win. And when you go to these environments, you see that there's a real void that has not been filled. And, and now you see massive levels of substance abuse and opiate overdoses in those communities. And what happened there is now going to happen to American communities around the country. 30% of malls and Main Street stores are closing in the next four years. Because why, why do you say that? What's that based on? The 30%? Mm-hmm. The 30%. Oh, so that's just real estate industry reports um, who study the retail sector say that 30% of American malls are going to struggle and fail over the next four years. And then there's another 30% that might fail. Right. Um, Some so, might say that's a good thing. <laughs> we, have, we have too many malls. Come on, Preet. You grew up in I grew uh, up in, in malls. Right? I grew up. I grew up. How you know, can you even say a such mile a mile from the Mammoth Mall in Edentown, New Jersey? I did. So we were somewhat overbuilt in retail, but then you have to reckon with the fact that working as a retail cashier is the most common job in the U.S. economy. The average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making $10 an hour. So if you say and say, hey, too many malls, let's close 30% of them, um, then you're looking at literally hundreds of thousands of low-skilled American workers who are doing those jobs to get by. So then what is their next move in a country where they don't have much in the way of savings? And if those stores and malls close, it's not like there are going to be other stores and malls hiring. So let's go back to robots for a second. Are you anti-robot? Well, I'm very pro-progress, and I consider robots part of progress. But you have to be honest and say, if I'm living in a part of the country where my main street's closing and I don't have a path forward, and it's partially because of robots, am I going to like robots? We have to try and make it so that Americans are actually sharing this sense of progress instead of having the economic rewards concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer of us. I want to get to this idea of people losing jobs. And it's a guiding principle of yours in some of the policy proposals that you've made, including the central tenet, I think, of your candidacy, which is the universal basic income. But what I guess is confusing maybe to some people is we have the lowest unemployment rate we've had in decades. This alarmist talk about the loss of jobs, whether it's from robots or technology or anything else, 
it's very small given how low unemployment is. How do you square the fact of low unemployment with this bleak picture that you're painting? We have three primary economic measurements that we rely upon in the media today. Number one is GDP. Number two is headline unemployment. And number three is stock market prices. Now, if you flash back to 2015, Donald Trump's running for president. And what does he say about the unemployment number? He says it's fake. He says it doesn't reflect what's happening in communities around the country. Now that he's president, of course, it's all... Taking credit for it. Yeah, yeah, it's all great. He was right the first time, unfortunately. Now, while we're trumpeting this very low headline unemployment number, I think it's like 3.7%, at the same time, our labor force participation rate is also at essentially a multi-decade low of 63%, the same levels as Costa Rica and Ecuador. And that's right now in the good times of year 10 of an expansion. Almost one out of five prime working age American men has not worked in a year. Right. So what you're saying is just so people understand, the unemployment rate that we always talk about on the news is a function of the number of folks who are actively seeking work and want to work. Yes. But there are large numbers of people, you're saying, who have given up on working. Yeah. Called, and they like, have to discouraged. Be discouraged workers. So from your perspective, what is the better index for how employment is faring in the country at the moment? So if you use something called the U6, which includes uh, people who are discouraged or like trying to cling to the workforce, then you have a rate that's more in like the mid to high single digits, maybe 6 or 7% instead of the 3.7. And if you look at the rate of people who are living in what's called like financial insecurity, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Some of the more telling stats in my view, are labor force participation rate, again, close to a multi-decade low, and levels of underemployment, that is, people who are doing jobs that are not what they theoretically are qualified for. So if you graduate from college with 38K in debt and you become a barista, you count as employed. I mean, that, that's like you've got a job, but 44% of recent college graduates are in a job that does not require a college degree. So if you go to them and say, hey, great news, you're employed, they'll be like, what are you talking about? I've like got this massive debt load and I'm doing this temp job with no benefits, <laughs> but you count as employed. 94% of the new jobs created in the U.S. economy since 2005 have been temporary gig or contractor jobs. That's one reason why you have so many Americans who are working multiple jobs to get by. So Donald Trump diagnosed this problem while he was a candidate. And then as president, it hasn't really changed for many Americans, but he's singing a different tune. Going back to this idea of automation, I want to make sure I understand your, your view of it. Are you just being descriptive and saying, well, we have automation, I'm pro-technology, I'm pro-progress, and it causes these problems that we have to deal with? Or are you also saying something normative, that automation is not good? Well, I think unchecked automation where only a handful of Americans enjoy the benefits is not good. And that's where we are right now, where... Amazon's paying zero in federal taxes while they're getting rid of 30% of brick-and-mortar retail jobs. Mm -hmm. So if you live in some rural area, your stores uh, on your main street close, and there's nothing coming back to you, really, just the jobs and vitality that used to be there are gone. And the trillion-dollar company is paying zero back into the public coffers. Then that's not a great situation. That's where we are right now. Job-wise, right? But there are other things that we talk about, including you didn't, you didn't mention one of the things that we focus on to gauge the success of the economy, the GDP, unemployment, and the stock market, there's this other thing, which is not as important, I presume, uh, utility to consumers and efficiency for consumers. The fact that Amazon has caused all these stores to shut down, is there some argument that offsetting that is the tremendous amount of utility is brought to tens of millions of Americans? 
Like, I love my Amazon Prime account. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I love convenience as much as the next guy. But one of the things I say is, look, access to cheap goods and uh, cool apps are a very cold comfort when your factory closes or your main street closes and you're looking around not knowing what to do. So I'm very, very pro-progress writ large, but I'd be even more pro-progress if more Americans felt like they were sharing in that progress. And if you talk about progress in the manufacturing sector, our manufacturing sector went from 17 million to 12 million workers over a 15-year period, 2000 to 2015. And 80% of those lost 5 million jobs were due to technology and automation. If you go to a factory today, it's not wall-to-wall immigrants. And I know you would agree with this, that we are scapegoating immigrants for something they have next to nothing to do with. It's wall-to-wall machines and robot arms. And so if you're a manufacturing worker, are you supposed to be celebrating progress while you get sent home? And I looked into, I studied economics in college. According to economic theory, those 4 million manufacturing workers would find new jobs get retrained, reskilled, and the economy would grow and all would be well. But in real life, half of them left the workforce and never worked again. And of that group, half filed for disability to the point where now there are more Americans on disability than work in construction, as one comparison. And then you saw coincident surges in suicides and drug overdoses to a point where our life expectancy overall has declined for three years in a row. That's shocking. The last time American life expectancy declined for three years in a row was the Spanish flu of 1918. So... Here we are cheerleading these GDP stats while our people are dying younger of the darkest causes of death you can imagine, essentially. So it just goes to show how disconnected these statistics are from our people's reality. I want to get to your signature proposal in a second. But before I do that, I want to note that you have lots and lots of specific policy ideas. In fact, the CAFE team put together a long list of your policies. We'll get to some of them. Um, There's a whole, you can see, there's a whole, geez, Yang. I think the number right now is like um, something like 107 or something. There's a range among your adversaries who are vying for the nomination. Uh, some might say that at one end is you, Andrew Yang, and Elizabeth Warren. Yes. There's a lot of policy proposals. At the other end, there are people who are a little less specific now. They say they will roll out more concrete policy proposals. The only other presidential candidate we've had on the show is Pete Buttigieg, who is beginning to roll out some policies, but has made the point that at this stage of the race... I want people to get to know me and I want people to understand what values I'm trying to promote and sort of the general themes of my candidacy. You have gone a different way. Why? Well, I think the best way to introduce Americans to who I am is to see what I would do as president. And so if you have over 100 policies laid out, you get a sense of a vision for the country. And then there's some values behind that vision. Uh, As you know, my signature proposal is a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for every American adult. Freedom dividend sounds better than UBI. It tests better, too. Universal. Basic income. Yeah. Yeah, freedom. It sounds a little bit like like it could be a disease. Yeah, UTI. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So freedom dividend is much, much, much better. So the freedom dividend is universal basic income by which the government would pay, according to your proposal, $1,000 a month to whom? To every American adult starting at age 18. So whether you have one adult household or two adult household, if you had two adults, both adults get the $1,000. Yes, that's correct. And until when? Until death? Until death. And whether you're a citizen or not? Citizens only, but I'm for a path to citizenship for people who are here. But what about people with green cards? I'd be for a very expeditious uh, path to citizenship because I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends with green cards who've been waiting for a while. Right, but I'm not talking about undocumented. I mean, people who are legal residents of the United States of America would not get the $1,000 a month? Until they become a citizen, that's right. Why? Well, you have to set a threshold and citizenship seemed to be the appropriate one because at that point you are 
you know, obviously paying taxes. I know many legal residents are obviously paying taxes as well. Uh, but you're a full-fledged member of the society with all of like the benefits and obligations. Uh, I'm very much for legal residents uh, adopting citizenship. Every time that happens and someone's cool, I'm like, you just made America cooler, like makes me very happy. But only citizens should receive some of the uh, dividend from our shared progress. Do legal residents get Social Security? It's a good question. I believe they do. You probably actually I believe you paid into into Social Security, as you have to if you're an employee in this country, then you get get the payout from Social Security. So I I I just wonder why you would leave off, you know, tens of millions of people from the universal basic income. Well, I don't think there are tens of millions legal, of legal residents in the U.S. Um, I, well, there, I do know that the figure for undocumented alone is somewhere between 9 and 12 million. Yes. But legal residents, I would assume, is more. But we'll, <laughs> I, we're going to research this. Yeah, we should research it. I think legal residence is, is less than the undocumented number. But, but, you know, I'm for, again, a path to citizenship for people who are here and undocumented. Like we need to try and integrate people into society. But this, in many ways, is like a very powerful incentive to make citizenship more meaningful. Okay, so let's go back to the freedom dividend. Why a thousand bucks? It has many benefits, uh, and this is not my original proposal. It was championed by a guy named Andy Stern, who used to run the SEIU, and then it was studied Which by the, the Roosevelt, yes, the largest labor union in the country, representing service employees. Uh, it was then studied by the Roosevelt Institute. A thousand dollars a month has some tremendous qualities. It would be a difference maker for tens of millions of American families. It would make our children stronger, healthier, better nourished. It would make us all mentally healthier. It would create over 2 million new jobs in the economy, according to the Roosevelt Institute, because of increased consumer demand. Uh, But it's below the poverty line in the United States, which is $12,770 a year. Uh, And it doesn't distort our labor markets that dramatically because no one's going to be able to retire in $1,000 a month. So that's why it's not $500, that's too little, and that's why it's not $2,000, because A, that costs more, and B, you think it distorts the labor markets. Yeah, that's right. Um, Why not means test? Well, there's one state that's had a dividend in effect for almost 40 years. Uh, That state's Alaska, where everyone in the state gets between $1,000 and $2,000 a year from oil money, no questions asked. And what I'm saying in my campaign is that technology is the oil of the 21st century, and that what they're doing in Alaska with oil money, we can do for everyone. But one reason why it's so wildly popular in Alaska is that you just get it. There's no means testing. It's universal. And this isn't a Republican conservative state. It was a Republican governor that passed it. In the U.S., if we make this a right of citizenship, then it'll become much more universally liked. There's no stigma attached to actually getting the dividend because it's not a rich to poor transfer. So it's not like, oh, I'm giving it to you. You get it. I don't get it. You get rid of all the administration and monitoring requirements, changes of circumstances. There's no timing of payments issue because I don't need to figure out how much money you made. There's no negative incentive to say, oh, I made below a certain threshold. You get rid of a lot of stuff and you make it much more universally appealing. It's one reason why this dividend in Alaska has stood the test of time and is so wildly popular despite uh, being there for almost 40 years. So everyone gets it. If you're a Rockefeller, if you're a Trump, if you're a Bezos, or if you're impoverished. Yes, that's right. Do you think that's fair? In a way, you could say that's the fairest we could do, is that if we're all owners and citizens and shareholders of this society and we all get a dividend of $1,000 a month, you can interpret that as, uh, as being quite fair. Um, though the way I want to fund this is by putting a mechanism in place so that Amazon doesn't pay zero in taxes next year because that's unsustainable. The if taxes we, on Amazon is not going to pay what I think the estimates are $3 trillion a year for the basic income. So here's how you pay for it. Our economy is up to $20 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years. 
We're the richest country in the history of the world. But we're not measuring and taxing the right things. And one of the things I say is like, look, Jeff Bezos is worth $160 billion. It doesn't matter when you make the income tax level because he's never selling his Amazon stock. He's never going to have a taxable event. You know, it's like he's too smart, <laughs> frankly. Like if you increase the tax rate to 70%, like he's not going to all of a sudden like give you billions of dollars in, in new revenue. So the way you get the revenue from someone like Jeff is you join every other advanced economy in the world and you have a value-added tax, which would then give the American public a tiny slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, and soon every robot truck mile. And because our economy is now so vast at $20 trillion, even a mild value-added tax generates over $800 billion in new revenue. How mild? Uh, 10%, which would be half the European level. And you don't think that that also has its own negative effects on the economy? Well, it has it has many positive effects in the economy because it actually gives us a segment of the value that's being produced and distributed. And again, every other advanced economy in the world has already taken this step because they know it's perverse for a company like Amazon to sell tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in goods and pay zero in taxes. What do you say to the people who suggest that the sort of giveaway of money as opposed to expanding a tax credit or having some form of means testing, that just giving folks money whether they work or not, whether they've earned it or not, in some ways undermines the dignity of work? Well, that's one of the misconceptions. It's actually very pro-work. Again, it creates a couple million jobs in the economy. And so here's the magic to it. So you, you have this VAT, we're getting this money. Where does the money go? The money goes right back into our homes and communities. It ends up creating jobs right there with our local businesses, but also it supercharges nonprofits and religious organizations. It makes it so that people like my wife, who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, I mean, that's playing out in families and communities around the country, where right now we talk about empowering women. What would empower women is if they had the economic freedom to improve their situations and walk away from exploitative or abusive jobs and relationships, which $1,000 a month would actually uh, help them do. Uh, so it's pro-work and it recognizes the work that's actually being done in our families and communities each day. It also ends up being a catalyst to arts, creativity, entrepreneurship. Your brother's an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. It's very, very rare that someone's on their last legs economically. And then they say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a business. <laughs> that's actually the way it works. Do you think $12,000 in a year transforms someone from being... Um, sort of sitting around the house to deciding suddenly they're going to start a business? Well, again, you have to look at the cumulative effects. So if you have a town of 100,000 people and then there's an additional $12 million being spent in that community every month, then it's not just that I have this thousand bucks a month, so I'm going to start a bakery. But now that bakery makes a lot more sense in my town <laughs> because now like the people there will be like, hey, I like Andrew's cupcakes. I, I don't make cupcakes. <laughs> but, you should. I think you should think about them for the trail. I think the Yang Gang would occasionally like cupcakes. Yes. So so there, <laughs> it ends up being essentially like a reversal of the current mindset and environment of scarcity that unfortunately much of our country has fallen into. And so this is the trickle-up economy from people and families and communities up. The money doesn't disappear. We get it back as it circulates over and over. Is this socialism? It's capitalism where income does not start at zero. And as a CEO, I will tell you that it's much better for the economy when people have money to spend. What do you think about the term socialism and the debate about socialism and one of your adversaries running for the presidency, Bernie Sanders, and his views? I think the entire socialism-capitalism dichotomy is out of date. And I like to quote one of my friends, Eric Weinstein, who said that we never knew that capitalism was going to get eaten by its son, technology. Capitalism I'm, trying to just picture, I'm just trying to picture that. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize. Okay, got it. 
So here's what he means by that. We're all assuming that our economy still works like it did in the 70s, where if I start a successful company, I have to hire lots of people, I have to treat them well, I have to pay them well, and I care about what happens in my own backyard. Today, none of those things is true. I can start a successful company, not hire many people. If I hire them, they could just be a handful of highly specialized workers. They can be temp workers. I don't care about how much they make. I don't care what happens in my backyard because I sell everywhere. So all of the relationships you take for granted, it's like, oh, if I get these companies' bottom lines to be more profitable, they'll hire and invest. They're not going to hire and invest. I just spoke to 70 CEOs in New York, and I said, how many of you are looking at having AI replace thousands of your workers? Every hand went up. And you could actually fire that CEO if they didn't employ AI to get rid of those workers. <laughs> so if you put more money into the hands of that company, does that mean they're going to go around and hire thousands more high school graduates and like rebuild main streets around the country? Of course not. We have to wise up to the fact that we're in the 21st century and the best way to build an economy that works for us is through something like the freedom dividend instead of reaching back into our past for 20th century solutions. How much support is there for the freedom dividend in the current House of Representatives in the Senate? Well, it's going to be much, much higher after I'm in the White House <laughs> okay. in 2021. But, but why will that be? Because by definition, you will have had a mandate because that's the issue on which you would have been elected. That's right. And the Democrats and progressives will be like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness, Andrew Yang beat Donald Trump and he's our president. And let's work with him to pass this dividend because it'll put more money into the hands of children and families. But here's the fun thing, Preet. The Republicans and conservatives and libertarians and independents are going to look up and say, wait a minute, this dividend's a huge win for rural areas, red states on the interior, communities that have been devastated by automation. Am I really going to stand in the way of, of Andrew Yang and uh, or my constituents <laughs> in this dividend? And so we're going to pass the dividend when I'm in the White House. Americans are going to be shocked that the government did something right for a change. They're going to look up and then we're going to see what else we can get done. But on the way to getting there, obviously... From the position of hindsight, assuming that you get elected, things will have had to happen that would have necessarily have to have made the freedom dividend, as you call it, incredibly popular. And you ride on a wave of popularity that's universal, essentially, to the White House, which would seem to presuppose that along the way between now and Election Day, not just average Americans, but also people uh, who are in a position to make endorsements, including of you, would come along and say, you know what, I've been listening to Andrew talk about the freedom dividend and the basic income. And I'm on board and I'm convinced. Is that happening? Oh, that is happening. Um, you just met Steve Marchand, who ran for governor in New Hampshire as a Democrat. And he just came out and endorsed me. And there's so many politicians who are deeply interested in universal basic income. They're trying to see how warm the water is <laughs> for them to come out for it. Um, Any Alaskan politicians endorse you? Uh, I'm in touch with the Mike Gravel team. So there's a, a very high level of interest. And this is going to be one thing that the people can help with is that as universal basic income becomes, and it's already very popular among a majority of uh, Democrats and young people and um, progressives, but as it sweeps the nation, then obviously more politicians will get with the program and say, this is a much better move than anything else we're talking about. Let's move on to a related issue, economic uh, burden that a lot of folks have, and that's higher education. There was a very moving story that I've talked about and lots of people have noticed around the country where you have a billionaire, Robert Smith, who decided to, as a surprise, giving the commencement address at Morehouse College, say, I'm going to take care of all your students. So that's great for the class of 2019 at <laughs> school. And some might say, well, it's a wonderful story. It's very heartwarming and it's great for those people. But, you know, what does it say that you have to rely on that kind of fortuity and graciousness on the part of somebody who's made a billion dollars. 
What are you going to do for people with respect to school debt? Well, we should wipe out a lot of that student loan debt, not just for the people. Well, how are you going to do that? Because you got the three trillion on the on the freedom dividend. Well, so on the freedom dividend, a couple things. So we get a lot of the money back in economic growth and new activity. We also save billions of dollars on incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care, things we spend a trillion dollars on right now. And I was with a prison guard in New Hampshire. Very politician-y of me, I know. But I was with a prison guard in New Hampshire who said we should pay people to stay out of jail because when they're in jail, we spend so much on them. We're going to save a lot of money. And then the the fourth thing is there was one estimate that we would increase our GDP by $700 billion by adopting this plan just on the basis of better health and education and mental health outcomes for our people. Like right. you're, you're actually getting a lot of the value back. So you're asking how can we forgive the student loan debt? We're up to $1.5 trillion in student loan debt up from less than $100 billion in 1999. So this is a very recent phenomenon. And so when young people look up and say, like, hey, is this normal? It is not normal. College has gotten two and a half times more expensive since I went, and it has not gotten two and a half times better. So when you say, how are we going to forgive the student loan debt? This, again, is a giant stimulus of the economy. Every dollar we forgive in student loan debt, that young person, sometimes older person too, is just going to end up having more money to spend. What are they going to do? They're going to buy homes. They're going to start families. They're going to start businesses. They're going to do the things they should be doing. Um, This is a stimulus of the people. Instead of shoveling money to the banks, we give the money back to our people where they actually will, will make use of it. And at this point, it's not like the schools are in hock for this money. This is just a set of financial institutions that are holding this uh, $1.5 trillion. They don't care where the money comes from. We can pay them off. Do you believe there should be a national minimum wage? I believe that no American should be working full time and be poor. The problem is that if you increase the minimum wage from, let's call it, you know, $9 to $15, that's going to hasten the automation of many of these jobs in environments like fast food restaurants and retailers that are barely scraping by. So it's better just to give everyone $1,000 a month because that's a de facto $6 an hour raise for everybody. And it gets to people like my wife who right now a minimum wage would not touch. You are a lawyer by training. Uh, You're an unhappy lawyer in private practice for a bit. And one of the issues that obviously I care about and talk about and is consuming the news cycles are issues relating to the rule of law and Donald Trump's conduct and the Mueller report and everything else. I just want to ask you, as somebody who went to a phenomenally terrific law school um, (laughs) six years after I did, uh, do you think the House of Representatives should proceed with impeachment of Donald Trump? Oh, I think there's a very strong case that they should. Uh, But as you suggest, I think it's their job to figure out whether to impeach Donald Trump. And it's my job to solve the problems that got him elected and to beat him at the ballot box if he's still there for me to beat. (laughs) So we all have jobs to do. (laughs) I mean, looking at the evidence, you know, and obviously I find much of his conduct uh, somewhere between uh, objectionable and reprehensible. Uh, It's one reason why I'm running for president to beat him. But I, I will say that the problems that got him elected are much more profound than can be resolved even by getting him out of office through impeachment and legal proceedings. Describe what those things are. The levels of dislocation and despair and the fact that many Americans just do not feel like their government is responsive to them. I have met thousands of people who voted for Donald Trump as essentially a vote to burn the house down. They don't feel like their government's working for them. They look around and see their kids strung out on drugs, their way of life disappearing. They're looking for answers. They don't have anyone really speaking to them, except for Donald Trump, who's like, hey, you know whose fault it is? Immigrants. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the clock back. I'm going to bring your jobs back. And many of them knew he was talking garbage and nonsense even at the time, but they're like, well, at least he's talking about it. So to me, he's a symptom. He's a manifestation 
and I'm here to cure the disease. You have been outspoken on the issue of legalization of marijuana. You believe in legalization. Yes, that's true. Have you smoked any marijuana today? Definitely on the trail? Not. Does it help you on the trail? <laughs> I, I do. I, <laughs> let's just say you can be for the legalization of marijuana and not indulge in it yourself. Very well said. Nice sidestep there. Um, I think you've said with respect to the Supreme Court, and there's a legal issue, there should be term limits. Yes. What, what is the process by which Supreme Court justices should be appointed and serve and why? We should change it from lifetime appointments to 18-year terms which would then make it more predictable. If you were to have nine justices, there'd be a new one appointed every two years. So every presidential election, you know, would end up nominating two justices if you kept it at nine. And this would make it so that we don't freak out when an 85-year-old woman gets a cold. Lifetime appointments might have made sense when your life expectancies were much shorter, as was the case when they wrote the Constitution. And back in the day, People stepped off the court for a multitude of reasons. They didn't stay there until they were on death's door because they were afraid all the laws of the land were going to change if they, <laughs> right. if they weren't there. So uh, what might have made sense at another point in time, it was just meant to protect judges from political influence. And an 18-year time frame is plenty long for someone to maintain judicial independence during that time. Do you believe Puerto Rico should become a state? I believe that the Puerto Ricans want Puerto Rico to become a state. Yes, it should become a state. And it's one possible way we can forgive the debt load that is crushing the people and the economy of Puerto Rico. Should the District of Columbia become a state? Uh, same thing if they want to become a state, which I think they categorically do. Like they should become a state as well. Yeah. No taxation without representation. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Two Asian guys talking about no taxation without representation. Yes. We learned our civics well, even while being bullied in school. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why we learned them well. We're like, what are the answers? <laughs> like, no recess. I don't want to go to recess. I was more of a no gym guy. <laughs> yeah. No, but then I became very, very, you, you can't see me, but I then became this very strapping uh, example. You look of, very fit. Uh, you look yes. very fit now. Um, should companies like Facebook be broken up? So here is a very interesting set of issues. Like, are there instances where it would make sense for them to divest parts of their businesses? Yes. Does that solve the problems we're actually concerned with? In some cases, probably not. Like if you look at Facebook, there's a problem with uh, the information people are getting. There's another problem with the negative impact on the mental health of teenage girls in particular. And that has nothing to do with the ownership structure of Facebook. That has something to do with the fact that we have engineers who are turning supercomputers into slot machines and dopamine delivery devices for teenagers, which has had a disastrous effect on their mental health and well-being. So we have to figure out what problems we're actually trying to solve and not be tempted to use 20th century solutions for 21st century problems because the dynamics of tech are not such that, oh, if I just increase competition, all will be well. That's actually not the way it works. There is no reason for any of us to want to use the fourth best navigation app. We just want one that works and has a, the right traffic and the rest of it. That's why we're all not binging things today. You know, it's not like, oh, if I just had a multitude of search engines. <laughs> I think people don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Bing is a search engine. <laughs> that's, that's my <laughs> point. <laughs> they tried to compete with, what's the other one? Oh, yeah, Google. <laughs> Although I was on my laptop today and it forced me into a Yahoo search. And others. how did you react to being forced to a Yahoo search? Poorly. <laughs> I reacted poorly to, to that. Yeah, so, so there, there are certain dynamics that work in tech that make it such that just being like, if we just like break them up and have, it, it is definitely the case that Silicon Valley's business models have been transformed in a negative way where now everyone's just trying to get acquired by one of the behemoths. Right. But what do you think about this other aspect of the problem on social media? Toxicity, hatred, white supremacists, and I guess more generally, 
separate from these from the policies, and they're they're interesting and they should be judged on their merits. But there's also this question in this country of how we bring people together, and I don't know that you do that through individual policies. Although you have great faith in the power of policies that affect people who have been disaffected to bring them back into the fold. What do you think generally about a vision for unity for the country? Well, one example of a policy I think would help is an American exchange program where every high school senior goes and lives and works in another part of the country with a group of 24 other high school seniors. And then it would be Not Paris, but Paris, Texas. Yeah, Paris, Texas. Okay. Uh, And then you'd be Facebook friends with people from all over the country. When someone tried to demonize someone from a particular group, let's call them Indians, (laughs) you'd be like, I freaking know an Indian kid from like Chicago and he was like, just like me. Um, (laughs) So that's one way a policy can actually reduce the insularity and tribalism. On the social media networks in particular, there's a guy named Jaron Lanier who pointed out something. He's one of the pioneers of the internet. He said that negative sentiment is more powerful on the internet than positive sentiment, which is one reason why it seems like inflammatory and even toxic and hateful ideas uh, spread so much online. And that's a fundamental observation that you have to reckon with where, okay, we've set up these social networks that transmit negative emotions and ideas faster and more powerfully than they transmit positive ones. And so what does that mean for how to bring people together? At this point, even Mark Zuckerberg is saying, I need help with this. If you listen closely, he's saying, look, I'm the head of a private company. Like, I can't be making all these decisions. And then we're throwing rocks at him, in part because, again, our government and Congress is decades behind the curve. And we can't imagine them making intelligent decisions about these issues. So we're like, Mark, do something. (laughs) And then Mark's like, literally in an interview with George Stephanopoulos, he was like, I should not be making these decisions. And if you look at what Facebook's doing to screen their toxic content, you know what they're doing? They're paying humans chicken scratch to look at the content, figure out what's hateful and evil and obscene. And then to no surprise of anyone, those humans start losing their minds after a certain number of months. <laughs> and, and then they, they're like quitting. It's like the most burnout inducing job you can imagine. Talk about inhuman. Facebook, the multi-billion dollar company is paying people you know, I think it's something like 10 bucks an hour to look at terrible things. And send them so into that, depression. Yes. <laughs> right. And send them into depression. And that's what passes for policy today because the government's like, do something about it. And that's what they're doing. What qualifies you to be the commander in chief? I think what most Americans are looking for in a commander in chief is good judgment um, because these are the kinds of decisions that, you know, there's really no prior preparation. And so, I have principles around what I would do with the military. Uh, I would end the forever war. The fact that we have troops in so many places, in many cases, engaged in conflicts that, to your point of the rule of law, that Congress has never authorized, that that the American people have very little visibility into even, uh, certainly the American people did not decide on many of these conflicts. I think we need to put the ability to intervene militarily back into the hands of Congress where it belongs. How would you deal with Iran? I mean, I, I would hope to reopen the deal we entered into about de-escalation of their nuclear activity in return for various economic considerations and others. I think we get more done when we're engaged with people than when we're not. So I've, I've spent most of this talking about policy and your background and your character and how you think about the country. I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the thing that everyone does on the cable networks, and that is the horse race. Sure. The process. So you're one of, I don't know, 1,100 <laughs> running. Come on. It was now 20, 24. But maybe not closed yet. Is that, is that the closed universe? I think there might be more. There might be one, one or two more. One or two more. Um, 
how the hell do you stand out? You have said something that I think is clever about yourself. You said the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very funny. Pete Judge says something like that. The opposite of Donald Trump is a millennial veteran who uh, is gay and runs a city in the Midwest. <laughs> I, I think mine is a better ring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's a little longer. He's a little longer. You can't but even remember you got to do the Yang gang. <laughs> Buddha judge has the same problem. It's going to be an issue for him because the Buddha judge, Buddha judge, there's no rhyming thing for him. Um, is it important to frame yourself as the opposite of Donald Trump? Well, it certainly helps uh, people make sense of my candidacy in a very, very memorable way. Um, but I'm one of only 12 candidates who's qualified for the Democratic primary debates on the basis of both polling and individual contributions. And most Americans are not really tuning into what's going on with 2020. They're going to turn on that TV. They're going to see me standing there. And they're going to say, who's the Asian man standing next to Joe Biden? <laughs> and then they're going to look you up. And then they're going to Google think? Asian man standing next to Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, and, and then they're going to find out about me, my vision for the country. And the Yang Gang is going to grow and grow. So we're starting to see increased polling numbers in New Hampshire and Iowa and the early states. And this movement is just catching fire at the right time. We're going to grow and grow and peak at the right time. Do you have optimism that the Democrats will do what a lot of them are saying they're going to do, which is to be positive only and not trash their adversaries? Well, this is a very, very interesting dynamic, Preet, because like you're in a crowded field. And like I'm top 10 by most any measurement. The internet has me actually a seventh most likely to win the nomination, sometimes sixth. So I'm actually in a better position than a lot of people. And like, so the question is, if you're in like the 13 to 24 range um, and you're trying to get on the map, it's going to be hard to resist taking a shot or two at, at various people above you. But here's like the... Are you signaling? Are, so why don't you take a shot at someone right now? Well, here's a very interesting thing though, Preet, is that the <laughs> Democrats have a history of being nice to each other, and then the gloves come off in the general. And sometimes that dynamic shift is not good for us. If we're going to have a genuine race, then the gloves should probably come off at some point during this race so that by the time our nominee faces Donald Trump, all the stuff's out in the open, as opposed to all of like the, the really important stuff being held in wait until after the person Look, gets nominated. It's a very candid, honest response. So here we are on Stay Tuned. Take the gloves off. Say something about Bernie Sanders. You know, a lot of Americans are very excited about the fact that he seems like a very sincere economic messenger, but his solutions are very backward looking. They're trying to resuscitate an economy that existed at some point in the 20th century. And a lot of that is going to be very, very hard to actually materialize in real life. Like we, we need to be more forward looking about how we can actually make an economy work for people. And this is coming from someone who, who liked and supported Bernie in 2016. Um, is he too old to be president? This is one of the most important, because this is one of the elephants in the room. We're looking at Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, and we're like, okay, they were born in 1941 and 1942, respectively. Is that what we want? Like, as a party, as a people, it's very hard for candidates to talk about. It's very hard for the media to talk about. But every American's thinking about it. When I go out and I'm on the trail, it's one of the first things that comes up. If someone has a problem with either of those two candidates, and you're in a personal conversation with them, one of the first things they'll say is they're too old. So are you saying they're too old? I'm saying that the American people should have like a very real conversation about what we think we want in a president and whether or not having someone uh, whose advanced age is actually an issue is ideal for the party or the country. What about Elizabeth Warren? Uh, I like Elizabeth Warren's vision of the country a lot. As you, you said, she's very wonky and I, I sort of like that. You like that. <laughs> so would you be her running mate? Or would you have her as your running mate? 
Well, one thing that you know, because you've hired many, many people yourself, but you would never agree to work with someone unless you actually met them and spent some time with them. I've never met Elizabeth Warren, so it would be impossible for me to say whether... Oh, that was a nice dodge. <laughs> nice <laughs> dodge. How, how about, um, how about uh, Kamala Harris? I also have not met Kamala, so I don't have a basis. But I'm going to meet them all soon at the debates, so I'll have more to say after June 26th. What's your strategy for the debate? I have four zingers locked and loaded. I'm you kidding. do? I, no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. All right. So I you think, actually have six. Well, I think I anytime time you, you, you're a nerdy guy, you got you to gotta prepare them. I'm overprepared. Vince. <laughs> I actually think it's painful every time a politician like brings out their clearly rehearsed zinger in one of those contexts. Right now, I'm still introducing myself to the American people. And so like, I'm very happy to have that opportunity. Let's say you become the nominee. What is the way that you take off the gloves with Donald Trump? He's a bully. Lots of people suggest. I tend to agree. Do you think he's a bully? Oh, yeah, clearly. How is he different from the bullies that you dealt with when you were a kid, if at all? You know, that's a great question. He's actually quite similar <laughs> in many so respects. So are you going like, to jump him? <laughs> I wouldn't be a fair fight, debate. man. I'm, I'm like a man in my prime. That dude's like 72 and eats fast food every day. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting, uh, this is going to be an interesting debate. So short of physicality, how do you take on a guy like that? I'm the perfect candidate to expose Donald Trump because I'm talking about the problems that got him elected, but I have real solutions. So again, his solutions were build a wall, turn the clock backwards, bring back the jobs. I'm saying we have to turn the clock forward. We have to evolve in the way we see ourselves and our relationship to the wealth we're producing in, in this society. And that's one reason why I'm already peeling off many people that supported him in 2016. And that's one reason I'm going to end up the Democratic nominee, because Democrats want first and foremost someone who can beat Donald Trump in 2020. And more and more people wake up every day to the fact that I am that candidate. Complete the following sentence, which I add. Valerie Jarrett, who's a guest on the show recently, complete. When they go low... Uh, we make a clever joke, Preet Bharara style, <laughs> uh, make everyone laugh and expose them for the blustering failure of a president that he is. That has less of a ring to it than we go high. That's true. It's a bit longer. <laughs> it's a bit longer. Maybe we want to tweak that a little bit. Do you think America is ready for an Asian American president? Uh, I'm going to tell a joke right now. It's like someone, because someone said this to me. America is ready for an Asian American president because it will irritate everybody. <laughs> What, you, what is that? I don't even know what that means. I wouldn't be irritated. You wouldn't irritate Asian Americans, or maybe a little bit. You know, it's true. Competitive Asian Americans would be like, you know, they'd have to deal with their parents saying to them, as my parents would, you're 50, he's 44, and he's already the president of the United States. So there'd be like some competitive angst. I think Americans are ready because most Americans I meet on the trail do not care about my uh, racial background or identity in the least. They, they just want to know what my vision for the country is, how it's going to help them and their families. And when they see that I'm there to help, it's the last thing they care about. If you don't win, if you don't win the primaries and you're not the Democratic nominee, what do you think the next few years will look like for you? Well, uh, we're going through the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of our country, what experts are calling the fourth industrial revolution. And I'm running for president to help America wake up to the fact that it is not immigrants <laughs> and uh, that we need to advance meaningful solutions. And so that work will be there if I'm not the nominee. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. And so if that's as part of a new Democratic administration, that would make me very happy if I had a role that I thought I could actually help really make these changes. Um, if it's another sort of role, that would also be great. But the problems are big and getting worse. And I, I see myself as someone who can help. You know what I appreciate about that answer? I fully expected you to do what most politicians would do, and not answered by saying, well, I intend to win. And not you expected that on me, Preet? 
Well, I expected that out of an average person, <laughs> not not someone like you, your Exeter guy, right? Yeah, uh, very impressive. Yeah, that you admit the possibility that something won't happen, and it's not just the standard talking point. So I appreciate that. Well, I'm on the record saying I have a lower than 51% chance of becoming president as we're sitting. <laughs> lower than 51%. That's not terrible. Uh, well, the, the internet has me at like 7 or 8%. Andrew Yang, congratulations on how far you've come. Good luck to you and the entire Yang gang. <laughs> Thank you so much, Preet. Like, I thought you might join the Yang gang for a second there. I'm remaining neutral. I'm remaining neutral for now. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks so much. Just a quick note before we end. You'll remember that Andrew Yang and I discussed the number of lawful U.S. permanent residents, also known as green card holders, as compared to the number of undocumented immigrants. Well, so Andrew Yang and I were both a bit off. Since I taped the interview, my crack team did some research into this and found that based on Department of Homeland Security's most recent estimate from 2015, there were about 13.2 million lawful permanent residents and 12 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. My conversation with Andrew Yang continues for a special insider bonus. To hear that and more analysis of Mueller's statement, join the community at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Andrew Yang. Tweet your questions at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call 669-247-7338 and leave me a message. That's 669-24-PREET. Or... You can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help new listeners find the show. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the Cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.